Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. For those of you who were not there, uh, but this is considerably part two. And I think part two has to do with uh, Cain being the first person to build a city. And that understanding of the city that he built and the far-reaching implications of the city. And how that relates to our observance of the Feast of Tabernacles. That we need to be very clear that the Feast of Tabernacles has everything to do with the city that Cain built. So let's go to Genesis. And I realize uh, I should have put that other microphone on. I apologize. We're good? Okay. Uh, Let's go to Genesis, and again, we'll just uh, start where we started last time, and that's in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, and in verse 15, breaking into the middle of this this, uh, event where Satan was successful in destroying Adam and deceiving Eve, and then God handed down sentences to Satan, to Eve, and to Adam three different sentences, but here in the sentence to Satan, in verse 15, he says that he will put hostility between Satan and the woman. So whatever happened, God is ensuring that that does not happen again, and there will be hostility between Satan and the woman. But not it doesn't stop there. The hostility will continue between Satan's seed and her seed. So the woman is going to have a seed, And it's going to have hostility with Satan's seed. And this seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the devil. It's going to destroy the devil. But the devil will bruise his heel. So the the devil will inflict pain on the seed, but not fatal. It won't be fatal. Whereas for Satan, the blow that the Messiah will deliver to Satan will ultimately destroy Satan. So that's the backdrop for Genesis 4. Let's go to Genesis 4 then. And I I covered this already, but I'll just quickly read it just so that we have the full context as we get into the back half of Genesis 4. So Adam and Eve heard this sentence, and they real. in fact, Adam changes Eve's name. Her name was um, out of man prior to this, and then... Adam changed her name to Eve after these sentences, realizing that she will be the mother of all living and that the Messiah is going to come through her. So in Genesis 4, verse 1, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived, and she bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Or in other words, I have gotten the Messiah. This is it. So she knew that the seed was to come out of her. And the thing about prophecy is we expect God to act right away where he may take hundreds, he may take thousands of years. He will absolutely do what he says. He just won't necessarily do it tomorrow. But the way we think, we think it's going to happen in our lifetime. It has to happen tomorrow. So she thought, this is it. This is the man. And both Adam and Eve would realize, okay, we've gotten the Messiah. And she bare again, and she again bare his brother Abel. And so just by the name of Abel, he really wasn't a big deal. The focus was on Cain. Abel means breath or vanity, it's just 
He's just another man. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So there's division of labor here. Cain takes up where his father, uh, his father's skill of tilling the ground. Abel looks after the animals. In the process of time, it came to pass. So in the process of time. So when we read that, we have to realize that Adam and Eve are having other children. So the earth is being populated, and these children are having children. So I think sometimes we just get stuck in the story, and we think it's Adam, Eve, Abel, and Cain. But it's in the process of time. So over time, the earth is being populated, and uh, they are still focusing on Cain. So in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock, and then Moses is careful to write, and of the fat thereof. And we know from Leviticus that when we bring a burnt, when they bring a burnt offering to God, they're to bring the fat of the animal. They're to bring the best part of the animal. So, so Moses is making it clear that Abel was very compliant to the law, to the Torah. Well, he didn't have the Torah at this time, but to the word of God. So he would have been instructed how to, how to bring an offering. And he's bringing the best to God. He doesn't comment on Cain's offering. He just says that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's not that Cain had to bring an animal, because in Leviticus it shows us what a grain offering comprises. And there's a way to bring a grain offering, which obviously the fact that Moses didn't comment on the offering means that Cain did not honor God with his offering. Again, Cain, I think we have to see Cain. Today we have a term, uh, narcissistic personality disorder where Cain clearly is a narcissist. It's all about Cain. He's, he, he's the one, and he's been brought up being told that he's the one. And so the world centers around Cain to the point where he doesn't even have regard for God. It's all about him. So he brings the offering to God. He has to bring it, but it's not his heart is not in it. So he says, um, verse 4, that Abel brought of the firstlings and the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. So verse 4 is devastating. For the first time, it's clear, publicly clear, that there's a problem with Cain. And that Cain is not this promised Messiah that everybody's looking toward. Now it's like, is, is it Abel? Suddenly it's very clear to the whole family and anybody else that's around that Cain is not this special person. God had respect to Abel. And I, I guess we, I don't think it's a stretch to say that these men were leaders, that every other, the other children are younger than them, so they're being looked to as the leaders. But unto Cain and to his offering, God did not have respect. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So one of the worst things you can do for a narcissist is make them feel unimportant. And now Cain no longer has the sense of entitlement, sense of importance. He's furious. And he's publicly humiliated. And the Lord said unto Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? So, in other words, there's really nothing for you to be angry about. Everything was spelled out for you. If you had followed what was spelled out, there isn't a problem. So what's your problem, in other words? If you do well, so if you follow my word, if you follow the instructions, won't you be accepted? So it's nothing against you personally. Just follow the instructions. And if you do not well, well, sin lies at the door. 
This is the human challenge. And unto you shall be its desire, and you should rule over it. So, so sin is there. This is a fallen world. Satan is working the world. You've got to master yourself. You've got to overcome sin. Otherwise, it's going to overcome you. There's no, there's no two ways. It's, it's one, you can't travel both ways. It's one way or the other. Either you overcome sin or sin overcomes you. So you have a choice to make. So we don't know what's happening in Cain's head, but we do see his actions. So God tells him, look, it's very simple. Do well. Verse 8. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and slew him. So whatever was going on in Cain's head, it resulted in this action of murder. And it's not the first murder, because Christ says that um, Satan is a murderer from the beginning. So the first murder was when Satan murdered Adam. But this is the first human murder. And it reflects when God made it clear you're not the one. You, you're just a human being. You've got to correct yourself. But Abel's offering was accepted. This did not sit well with the narcissist. Like, this is all about me. I'm the special one. The Lord said unto Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? So you, you kind of sense the attitude here. So he's just slain his brother. He couldn't care less. And don't ask me about Abel. I'm not my brother's keeper. I'm, I, I keep myself. The world is about me. I don't really care about Abel. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened her mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So the first time that human blood has been shed and the earth swallows it up and this relationship that Cain had with the earth to till the ground, it's now been cursed. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield unto you her strength. God says, a fugitive and a vagabond shall you be in the earth. So this is the sentence now on Cain. You're basically to, to lead a nomadic life. You're to be a nomad in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, I am so sorry that I have caused this pain to my family. I am so sorry for the loss of Abel. Look at the grief I've caused my parents. I can't believe what overtook me. Nothing like that at all. Cain said unto the Lord, my punishment, because remember this is all about me, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, this is all your fault. You have driven me out, of, out this day from the face of the earth. I didn't do anything wrong. You, look what you've done to me. And from your face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And it will come to pass that everyone, notice now there's lots of people on the earth. Everyone that finds me shall slay me. So now when this gets out, I'm the first person who's killed somebody. Justice demands that I be killed. So when they find me, I'm going to be this vagabond. Eventually people are going to catch up with me and I'm going to be killed. So this 
is very important for us to grasp the psychology of Cain and how self-centered he is. Now, God says in verse 15, God is trying to work with him here. And he says, you know, you've got to work, you've got to overcome sin. You've got to overcome your, your desires and get it right. So God says to him in verse 15, the Lord said unto him, therefore, whoever slays Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. So if that gets out, people are not going to be careful. Not, they, they don't want to incur God's wrath sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. So this is the situation now. Cain is to be a nomad, he's to be a vagabond, but he has some kind of a mark on him. That anybody who finds him will realize, oh, he's under God's protection. I'm not going to go against God because the wrath will be upon me sevenfold. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. And it says here that he dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. So he goes east of Eden, and he dwells in the land of Nod. And in verse 17, then, we read that he knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. And it says here, and he built a city, that is Cain. So he's the first city builder, the first urban planner. He built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Which is strange, because you would expect a narcissist to call the city Cain. But you have to realize that he's under threat. He doesn't want people to know where he is. So he's gone off, he started his own life. If he calls the city Enoch, nobody's necessarily going to know that that's, Cain is there. So, but he calls the name after his son, Enoch. This is the first city of man. And what I want to say in the message today is how significant this is. That the first city, civilization, is rooted in Cain. And that means it's rooted in Cain's narcissistic thinking. So here's somebody who's afraid for his life. He realizes what he's done is going to cause vengeance. He doesn't trust God. God has put a mark on him. He should be able to be free to wander the earth. But he doesn't trust God. So he's now setting up his own defense mechanism. So the city is going to be established in such a way that nobody can just walk into the city, find Cain, and kill him. He's going to have armed forces. He's going to be the mayor of the city. It's all going to be about Cain, because that's just the way narcissists think. So this, uh, this notion now of bringing people together, introducing the concept of politics, it's all self-centered. It's all based on self-interest. The city now, because it's rooted in Cain, in the Bible becomes a symbol for, for sin, collective sin. Look at Genesis 6. As the cities are built and modeled after Cain's city, in Genesis 6 and verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So this pattern that Cain has set up and people are attracted to live in the city and they're organized and controlled by others, uh, now sin is just rampant. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. So at this point now, 
God introduces, or, or yeah, he introduces the flood to wipe mankind out. Now, if you'll pardon me, I'm just going to take my jacket off. It's just a bit warm here. So God sends a flood to wipe all of this civilization out. The concept of the city that Cain designed survives the flood. So Cain's city building comes through the flood. How is that possible? Because everybody was wiped out except for Noah and his sons and their wives. A flood, we just had a hurricane Florence in the eastern United States. So they are subject to flooding. Eventually, the waters subside. Flood is not fire. If God wiped out the earth with fire, that's a totally different story. But it's a flood. When the waters recede, the infrastructure is still in place. It might be compromised, but it's still in place. So when the people disembark from the, the, the ark and begin to repopulate the earth, all of the infrastructure of these cities that Cain built, it's there. So they just rebuild it. And so the design, the thinking of Cain's cities come through the flood. That's important when we come to Genesis 10. As they're repopulating the earth now and rebuilding the cities, Genesis 10 and verse 8, Cush begat Nimrod. So this, Moses calls out this significant individual, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter. The English says before. The Hebrew is really the sense is against. He was a mighty hunter against the Lord. Therefore, it said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter against the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So these cities, uh, we even see today where our cities just ex- keep expanding and they become mega cities. So these mayors end up like kings and then they go and conquer other cities and expand their empire. So the whole idea of empire and kingdom begins with the city, the city state, and then it just grows. So here he's building his kingdom. And these are, this is the beginning of the kingdom, Babel, Erek, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. So this is where he's starting to build out his kingdom. Remember, these cities were there before. He's just build, rebuilding them and building them out according to his vision. Out of that land went forth Asher and built Nineveh and the city Rehoboth, and Kala. So there's all this city building. And Rezin between Neva, oh, sorry, Nineveh and Kala, this, that one is a great city. So there's these different cities, but some of them are mega cities. And ultimately these become kingdoms. Now let's go to Genesis 11 and verse 1. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech or one ideology. Everybody shared the same ideology. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east. So remember, after, or sorry, before the flood, when Cain was exiled, he went east. And he started building east. And now these people are coming from the east, having seen the building projects of Cain and his sense of urban planning. 
And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. This is significant, this land of Shinar, where we call Iraq today. And they dwelt there. And they said one to another, so it's the same thinking of Cain, come, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. Let's use the best technology we have. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, come, let us build us a city and a tower. Let's build it for us. The same thinking of Cain, I'm going to build this for us. We're going to make sure we have armed forces, we have police, we have tax collectors. We, we're building a name for us. This is the, they are going to become the elite of the city. Let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The same concept of Cain. Cain was told, you're going to be a fugitive, you're going to be a vagabond. Cain's like, nope, I'm going to establish a city, and then I'm going to protect myself so that no one can harm me. Here, they're told to spread out and uh, repopulate the earth. No, let's make a name for ourselves, and let's build a city, lest we be scattered. And the Lord came down to see the city. So they built this city, and God came down from heaven to look at the city. And it's combined with a tower. So now we have politics and religion combined together, which the children of men built. And the Lord said, behold, the people are one and they have all one language. So they have one ideology and they have the same language. And this is what they begin to do. So there's something about the building of the city that is antichristic. It's anti-God. God has one agenda. And by building cities... These people are going against God's agenda. And, and this is a, a global project of the time. So today, where we're looking at the same thing, we're looking at people having one language, at least being able to translate so they can communicate, and one ideology. And, and this whole belief in globalism, and instead of little city-states or even empires, we're looking at now a global empire. And God was very concerned thousands of years ago as to what they would do. That the agenda is ungodly. And so today it's the same thinking. It's the same devil that's inspiring this. He says, and now nothing will be restrained from them. So whatever it is they're doing, it is the opposite of what God wants. And God is saying, we can't have this. Nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. We can just fast forward to the book of Revelation and look at the beast that no one is able to make war with him, so he can do whatever he wants, to understand what was the agenda here. Because ultimately it's the same agenda. God says now, come, let us go down, so the Messiah hasn't come yet. And so if they do this, then the promise that he made, or the sentence that he gave to, to Satan, that the Messiah is going to come and crush you and destroy you, it can't be done if they're able to stamp out the Holy Seed. So if they're able to destroy the righteous line, then they can do whatever they want, and God is not able to fulfill his promise. So God's saying, no, this has to stop. This has to stop. Now the Messiah has come, and everything's in place to establish the kingdom. So when the beast power comes, yes, he can do what he wants, to a point. Because in Matthew 24, God says that unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. 
And he promises that he's going to establish his people in the end. So God is going to allow the beast to do what he wants to a point. But here, it's, too, it's premature. So God interrupts it, the city building, and the agenda that goes with com- combining and controlling ma- mankind. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. He doesn't say, let's take these ideas away from them. He just says, let's break the cooperation, that they cannot do this on a global scale. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city, or you could say they left off to build that city. That particular project was abandoned. But all the thinking, all the learning, all the passion, the commitment to building this city, they took it with them wherever they went, within their particular ethnic group. They have this same project in mind and all the learning from this. So this now is the foundation of all civilizations, the city and the tower. So all false religion originates here. All politics originate here. And this is the offspring of Cain's city. So Cain's thinking and urban planning is the foundation of all civilization, except for one. And that is Israel, who themselves corrupted themselves. So we can say all civilization, because Israel abandoned the God project. Therefore, is the name of it called Babel. That's why this particular city was called Babel. This is Babylon. This is the beginning of Babylon. And Babylon is the foundation of all false religion. Because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. And from there did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. So now they all go their way, building these city-states. And they're getting bigger and more powerful, and their armies are stronger. And when they're confident enough, you're building your city, I'm building mine. I believe I could take you on. Here comes my army to crush your city and make you subjects of my empire. Now I'm bigger. Now that I'm bigger, I'm coming to your city. And so this is how the empires expand and go to war with each other, but it all begins with initially the city-state, ultimately the empire. Cities are exciting. People love to live in the city. We lived in the country for a while. Very inconvenient. Very, very, I mean, now with this uh, thing in uh, Ottawa, with the tornadoes, I'll tell you, when, when you lose power, it's the cities that are the priority. We were, with, we were in the middle of winter. We were without power for like 10 days in free, like the worst cold temperature. We were the last, last houses to get power back on. All of the densely populated areas, they were the priority. So the city is convenient and it is attractive. And people, even our, our kids growing up in the country, they're happy to live in the city. They just experience the convenience. But look at Daniel 10. We'll come back to Genesis in a bit, but look, look at Daniel 10. What is behind this city building? So we have to view things with a bit of a spiritual eye. Why is everybody in this rush to build cities? And why are cities evil? Why is it that when mankind comes together and there's a bit of anonymity... That iniquity abounds. Well, look at Daniel 10 and verse 12. 
I think most of us are familiar with this story. He said, then said he unto me, fear not, Daniel, don't be afraid. For from the first day that you did set your heart to understand and to chasten yourself before your God, your words were heard and I am come for your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days. So this kingdom, which is ruled by a physical person who says, let's build this city and let's build this kingdom. Behind the physical ruler is a spiritual ruler, the prince of Persia. So it seems very clearly that the agenda of these city builders is inspired by demonic influences. And then Michael comes to help and we see the, the, he's able then to deliver the message to Daniel. But there was a resistance of the angel getting to Daniel by this devil. And so we see there's devilish forces behind this city building. Look at Matthew 4. And verse 8. Here when the devil was tempting Christ for 40 days... Verse 8, again, the devil takes him up to an exceeding high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And, and certainly these cities are glorious. And any of us who've flown, especially if you're landing at nighttime and all the lights are, it's, it's amazing how uh, these are like, it's just a wonder. So he shows Christ. All of these cities then have expanded and become nations and become kingdoms. And Satan is showing them all of this city building and consolidation. And he says unto him, all these things will I give to you if you'll fall down and worship me. So we can see very clearly there is a relationship between city building and Satan. And that Satan is able to do his will when human beings come together under this urban planning concept that Cain initiated. You know, it's uh, things that we do when we're together, we wouldn't do if we were alone. I see people today, and I hope I don't offend anybody, but this is just reality. I see people today with tattoos all over their body. There was a time when no sane human being would allow themselves to be tattooed. I'm a free person. Why would I be tattooed? But everybody's got tattoos. I feel a bit odd that I don't have a tattoo. In fact, now they have sleeves. I've got to go get a sleeve, right? You know, there was a time when I, when I was growing up, we had jeans and they're, they're torn. And we're embarrassed, but we, we were poor. So we have to go and buy a patch and you sew the patch and then they had technology where you could iron the patch on the jeans to hide the holes. Now people pay more for torn jeans. Because everybody around them has torn jeans. There was a time to walk naked would be a humiliation. Now we're competing with each other to see who can be more naked than the other. And everybody's like, you look great. Oh, you're so sexy. This is what happens when human beings are close together. We want to fit in and we're easily manipulated. And so when the prince of the kingdom of Persia is over Persia, he's manipulating these crowds, the collective to do his bidding. Look at Genesis 18. 
This is the story we are familiar with, Sodom and Gomorrah. But let's, uh, let's read it with our sensitivity to Cain's influence over city building. Genesis 18, verse 22, the men, that is the angels with God, turned their faces from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. So there's something that Abraham wants to say. And Abraham drew near and said, are you going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? So Abraham knows what he's going to do. And he's now, in a sense, withstanding God and interfering with God's will to go and destroy Sodom. Because he asked this question, like, are you going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. So this is, this is a big city. Sodom is a great city. And, and Abraham, to the best of his calculation, maybe there are 50 righteous people in Sodom. Maybe. So he's saying to God, okay, suppose there are 50 righteous in the city. Will you destroy and not spare the place for the 50 righteous that are there? So clearly, Abraham has an understanding of how corrupt, the corrupting influence of the city. Yes, it's convenient, but it's corrupting. And so maybe, uh, I don't know, let's say there's uh, 250,000 people in the city. Maybe there's more. But he's hoping like 50 righteous? That be far from you to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, if I find in Sodom, if I find in Sodom, 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, now I've taken upon me to speak to the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Suppose there lack five for the 50. So we've agreed 50, but just suppose we were five short. Are you still going to destroy the city for lack of five? Just five short? And he said, If I find there 40 and five, I will not destroy it. And then that, that goes on, and he negotiates all the way down. And then look at Genesis 19 now. So there are no righteous people in this city except for Lot. Genesis 19, verse 14. And Lot went out and spoke unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughter. So God is going to destroy the city, but he seeks to save Lot. Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. And I think, I think he had negotiated down to ten. Is that right? Ten, ten people? Yes. So there weren't ten righteous people in the city. So God pronounced the judgment. He's going to destroy the city. Lot realizes, he tells his sons-in-law, uh, God is going to destroy this city. It's just a, a hotbed of evil. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. And when the morning arose, verse 15, then the angels hastened Lot. They hurried him, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters which are here, lest you be destroyed in the iniquity of the city. So there's something about the city which breeds iniquity. And we couldn't even find ten righteous people there. Verse 19. This is Lot now. Listen to Lot negotiating with the angel. Behold now, your servant has found grace in your sight, and you have magnified your mercy. So Lot realizes he's destroying the city, but he gets to be spared, which you have showed unto me in saving my life. But I can't escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. 
So the, it's not attractive to live in the country. He wants to stay in the city because of the convenience. He says, behold now, this city is near to flee unto. So you're not going to destroy this one. And it's a little one. So Lot seems to have an understanding that when the city is big, the iniquity is worse. So he's now negotiating with the angel to say, I found a little city. Can I go there? I don't want to go in the mountain. I could, a wild animal could kill me. Oh, let me escape there. Please, please, please. Isn't it a little one? And my soul shall live. So you can just see the um, appeal of the city. But the city is not good for God's people. And we see this in Exodus 1. In Exodus 1. Exodus 1 and verse 9. Pharaoh said to his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than us. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply and it come to pass. When there falls out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us. So there's all these people in our land. They're multiplying in our land. If we go to war and they're not of us, they don't share our values. If they join with our enemy, then we are destroyed. Because not only are we fighting an external enemy, we're going to be infiltrated from within. So this pharaoh of thousands of years ago, 5,000 years ago, has more sense than our sophisticated leaders today. Who are letting in all kinds of people come in with, with that don't share our values and letting them multiply. And if we go to war, not only are we fighting an external enemy, if they join with the enemy, we're done. That's what this pharaoh is saying. And so get them up out of the land. Therefore, they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And notice this. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. So the people are enslaved for the building of the city for Pharaoh. And remember from Cain, cities are rooted in ego. This is all about Pharaoh's greatness. And so the city is for Pharaoh. God saves the people, he establishes them as a nation, and they build their own cities. And would you believe these cities become evil? The, the, the cities of God, the people of God, become evil. Look at Isaiah 1. Look at Isaiah 1 to see what the beautiful people of God do with their cities. Isaiah 1, verse 6, from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Your country, this is the sentence, your country is desolate. Your cities, this is what God thinks of Judah's cities. Your cities are burned with fire, just like Sodom. Your land, strangers devour it in your presence, and it is desolate and overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, which he has to do because of the promise to send the Messiah. If it were not for that, 
Had the Lord of hosts not left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom. And we should have been like Gomorrah. So the very people of God, when they come together and build their cities, they end up like Sodom and Gomorrah. Jeremiah 7. In Jeremiah 7 and verse 16, Jeremiah writes, Therefore, pray not you for this people. These are the people of God. Don't pray for them. Neither lift up cry nor prayer for them. Neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. So imagine that. You're going to go to God to pray for his, his people. And God's saying, don't pray for those people. I'm not going to listen to you. See you not what they do in the cities of Judah? These are the people of God. Don't you see what they do in the cities? And in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead their dough to make cakes to the queen of heaven, and to pour out drink offerings unto other gods, that they may provoke me to anger. I don't believe that this would happen if we didn't have the power of conformity. The need for people to fit in. Well, everybody else is doing it. I don't want to be the odd one out. Jude tells us we must earnestly contend for the faith. That means we're not going to be popular with everybody all the time. That means people are going to be talking behind our backs saying, oh, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? We have to earnestly contend for the faith. Because we're in this group and Satan has his way of just getting us to conform, to loosen up, to compromise. And here the people of God compromise to an extent where the children and the fathers and the women are all in agreement that we should worship Ishtar. Chapter 11 of Jeremiah. Therefore says the Lord, verse 11, Therefore says the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon them which they shall not be able to escape. These are the people of God. This is what God thinks of his own people. I'm going to bring evil upon them, and they're not going to be able to escape. And though they shall cry unto me, I will not listen to them. Then shall the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem go and cry unto their gods, unto whom they offer incense. But they shall not save them at all in the time of their trouble. For according to the number of your cities were your gods. So you have so many cities and that's how many gods you have. Because it's just easy to manipulate people when you bring them together. O Judah, and according to the number of the streets of Jerusalem, have you set up altars to that shameful thing, even altars to burn incense unto, unto Baal. Therefore do not pray for this people. And so God goes on to say what he's going to do with them. So what ultimately is the fate of all these cities, this city-building project that Cain initiated? What is the fate of them? Let's go to Revelation 11. <clears throat> Revelation 11, we have to understand just how important after the flood that first great city-building project was of Babel. That Babylon is the foundation of all of our cities. And the design of Babylon comes from Cain. But it is the foundation. And it doesn't go away. 
In fact, it's very clear when we look at Zechariah 5 that Babylon in the end time will be the greatest city again. That same place in the land of Shinar, that the whole world will look to it. And it will have influence all over the world. But here in Revelation 11 and verse 8, that here talking about the two witnesses, their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city. That's how this is, that's the influence and power that it's going to have. But here, here we're talking about God's city. That Jerusalem becomes like Babylon, becomes a daughter of Babylon. Jerusalem is, is here it's called spiritually. So there, there will lie in the streets of this great city, the city of God, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. We're also, and just in case we're not clear, it's the place where our Lord was crucified. This is, this is the influence of the city, where even Jerusalem becomes Sodom, becomes spiritual Egypt, it becomes Babylon. Chapter 14 of Revelation. And there followed another angel saying, verse 8, Babylon is fallen. It's fallen, that great city. Finally. This is the Babylon that we're going all the way back to Nimrod. The Babylon that Nimrod built. It has been extant. Even though they left off building that city, they took, it, they took it with them in their heads. And every city, every empire, every kingdom has been designed with that religious political control over humans. With the princes, the, the spiritual princes being the real rulers. But it's all founded. And every religion, every political uh, party, it's coming from this. But finally, finally it's fallen, this great city. Because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. She had finally the global influence that they were trying to do in Genesis 11. They finally do it here in Revelation. Chapter 18. Where the merchants now, verse 10, are standing afar off for the fear of her torment saying, alas, alas, this is unbelievable. No one can believe it. That great city, Babylon, the Bible means what it says. There's going to be a great city, Babylon, which is the same Babylon of Nimrod, which has influenced the whole world. That mighty city, for in one hour, its judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buys their merchandise anymore. And he goes on to talk about all the merchandise. But look at verse 13. Part of the merchandise are slaves and souls of men. And this is what God was interrupting in Genesis 11. That now all their imagination, which comes from the devil, they will do. And that means the people of God will be enslaved. And they will take the souls of men and destroy us. So God stopped it so that his will could unfold. But here now... They get their way, and now God stops it. Verse 16, saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious jewels and pearls, for in one hour, it's just unbelievable, in, in a single hour, such great riches have come to nothing. Verse 18, and they cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city 
is like unto that great city. So they were all modeling themselves after this one. But this is the pinnacle. This is the greatest city for them. And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness. In one hour she's made desolate. But verse 20, rejoice over her, you heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. So she's against the prophets. She's against the apostles. She's against the people of God. Had she gotten her way in Genesis 11, there would be no apostles. There would be no prophets. There would be no people of God. Every imagination they would do. But now when she gets her way, this is what she does. God now acts. And so we are to come out of her. God says, come out of her, my people. And this is a big part of keeping the feast. We're learning to come out of her, have nothing to do with her. Go to Isaiah 14. Just to be really clear, Isaiah makes it clear to us the connection between Satan and cities. Isaiah 14. A very familiar scripture. I just want to look at it slightly differently. In Isaiah 14, verse 12, how are you, how did this happen? How are you fallen from heaven? O Lucifer, son of the morning, how are you cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations, or we could say prostrate the nations, that all the nations submitted, all the nations were prostrate, how did he do this? For you said in your heart, and I know I haven't listened to Pastor Murray's sermon yet, but I know he was here last week. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. He, he, this, he's answering the question how he fell from heaven. But he's also answering the question, how did you prostrate all the nations? And so the answer is that in his heart, he said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. So here he suffers from narcissistic personality disorder. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be, it says, like the most high. It's really, I will be the most high. I will be the highest. This is his agenda. Isaiah writes, Yet you shall be brought down to Hades, to the sides of the pit. They that see you shall narrowly look upon you and consider you, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble? So the whole earth trembled. We were just talking about Satan, and now we're looking at a man. And everybody's saying, Is this the man that made the whole earth terrorized? that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof. Is this the man that did that? So what we should see here in this sort of smooth transition between talking about Satan to suddenly talking about a man is the integration between the devil and man. John writes it another way. John says, and they worshiped the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power to the beast. 
So when so the man is empowered by the devil, and they're they're together. So by worshiping the man, you're worshiping the dragon. So here, Lucifer is is the dragon, but it's the man that is actually destroying and, and consolidating the cities and causing them to be prostrate. Is this the man that made the world as a wilderness? He was just destroying everything. Who can make war with him? And destroyed the cities thereof that opened not the house of his prisoners. All the kings of the nations, even all of them, lie in glory, everyone in his own house. But you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch. And as the raiment of those that are slain, thrust through with a sword that go down to the stones of the pit as a carcass trodden under feet. You shall not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land and slain your people. The seed of evildoers shall never be renowned. So this man, this beast man, is humiliated totally. And people are looking and saying, is this the man? Is, is, he's, some kind of, he's just a man. And yet he was so powerful because he was empowered by the devil. Verse 21. So the seed of evildoers shall never be renowned. That's God's judgment. Prepare slaughter for his children, for the iniquity of their fathers. That they do not rise, nor possess the land. Why? Nor fill the face of the earth, fill, fill the face of the world with cities. This, like, no way. It's over now. All this city building, it's over. Because it is the work of the devil. It's how the devil influences mankind to worship him. Because he will be like the Most High. So, having seen very clearly how evil cities are, and how Satan has his way with man when he can bring them into a city context, what should our attitude be towards cities? I think we find the answer here in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. We're looking for our disposition, our attitude towards the city. In verse 8 of Hebrews 11, John, uh, Paul writes, By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, he obeyed. So he left his city his people. And he went out not knowing where he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise. So he was told this land is yours. So that's where he stayed. But he stayed there as in a strange country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. So he's told this is your land. All this land, as far as you can see with your eyes, it's all yours. And yet he lived there like a pilgrim. They put up tents, his son and his grandson. They're, they're like, this is our land. Why are we living in tents? Why are we impoverished? Why are we inconvenienced? By faith, he stayed in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles or tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. This is what tabernacling is all about. So it's not just like temporary dwellings. It's temporary dwellings in the sense, this is our land. We just don't want it like this. 
this, this, when he's in the city, this is his land. Not like this. This is under the devil's influence. But this is our land. For he looked. Why? Verse 10. For he looked for a city. There's nothing wrong with cities. The devil influenced Cain to build a city. Knowing that ultimately this is God's plan. To build a city. So it's not that the city is wrong. It's how Cain built it is wrong. Built it to enslave men, to control men. God wants a city to free men. Because Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob, they looked for a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is not Cain. It's not the devil. He's looking for a city whose foundation, the builder of, that, of the very foundation, is God. And this is why we're told now, like Abraham in, in 18, Revelation 18.4, come out of her, my people. Babylon has global influence. The devil has global influence over all these cities. They're all rooted in Cain's ideology and Nimrod ideology. We're to come out of her, dwell in tabernacles, looking for a city whose foundation and builder and maker is God. Let's go to Isaiah. Isaiah 40. These cities that do the devil's bidding are not good for God's people. And when the devil flexes his muscle, that means slaughter and subjugation for God's people. It always has. So when, when the devil can, all this political correctness, it's the very same thing we're seeing. We're seeing conformity to the devil's ideas. And human beings, intelligent human beings going along because nobody wants to be the outcast. Nobody wants to be the one that sticks out. I, I, no, I fit in. I, yeah, whatever you, yeah, I, I agree with everything. This is how the devil gets control, and it's not good for God's people. But here in Isaiah 40, and verse 9, O Zion, that brings good news. This is the gospel. O Zion, that has the gospel. Get you up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that brings good news, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up and don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's obviously, this is not a message that's politically correct. It's not a message that's acceptable, but don't be afraid. You lift up your voice and say unto the cities of Judah, these same cities that God condemned. God says the whole, from the foot to the head, it's all sick. It's all corrupt. And don't pray for these people. I'm going to slaughter all of them. They, they have more gods, as many cities as they have, that's how many gods they're worshipping. As many streets as there are in Jerusalem, that's how many false gods and idols they're worshipping. Don't pray for these people. I'm going to destroy these people. It's all bad news. And then there's good news. Say to these very same cities of Judah, Behold your God. Because God has a promise to Abraham. And he's going to fulfill it. Chapter 52. Verse 1. Awake, awake. Put on your strength. This Zion. 
Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. This is the city, the holy city. For from now on, there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. This is the good news. The subjugation of Babylon, the Babylonian system, to the point where it even destroys Jerusalem. It's going to stop. Chapter 61. So God is pronouncing judgment on the cities of Judah, but there's good news. Say to these cities of Judah, behold your God. Chapter 61, verse 4. And they shall build the old wastes. So make no mistake, Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by armies. The abomination of desolation is going to be set up. The people are going to have to flee for their lives. There's going to be utter destruction. Isaiah 61, verse 4. But they shall build the old wastes. They shall raise up the former desolations. And they shall repair the waste cities. The desolations of many generations. So these cities, God is not against cities. They just have the wrong foundation. And this is what we're looking for. I think we're very familiar with Revelation talking about the new Jerusalem. So ultimately the whole world is going to be engulfed in the new Jerusalem. So God is not against cities. But let us conclude at the beginning of Isaiah, as we are preparing ourselves to observe the Feast of Tabernacles, which is all about tabernacling, recognizing this is all temporary, because our home is with God in the city of Jerusalem. This is what we're looking for. That's our home. Isaiah 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And we're going to, after the feast, we're going to do a line-by-line study of Isaiah. But I'll tell you, in preparing for the Bible study, we don't respect Isaiah the way that we should. This is a profound prophet. This is a prophet that interacted with God directly, that was given a full vision of everything that's going to happen. But his book is more like a library than a book. So it doesn't read, you can't just sort of sit down and read Isaiah. It's kind of jumbled. You have to make sense of it. So we don't do that. What we do is we just pick and choose verses out of Isaiah. And as I'm studying, it's almost like every popular verse in Isaiah, when you read it in context, it doesn't quite mean what we think it means. And I think part of the context that we miss is right here in verse 1 of chapter 2, and it's also in verse 1 of chapter 1, that it's the word of Isaiah, the son of Amos, that he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So Isaiah is not about the United States of America. Isaiah is not about Britain. Isaiah is not about Canada. It's about Judah and Jerusalem. And if we keep that in mind, And then the judgments on other empires are because of their relationship with Judah and Jerusalem. Then it starts to make real sense. So this is about Judah and the city of Jerusalem. Verse 2. And it shall come to pass in the last days. This is, Isaiah saw this. That the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. And it shall be exalted above the hills. 
and all nations shall flow unto it. So Satan says, I will be like the Most High. And that's why all nations flow to Babylon. Babylon is Satan's Jerusalem. He's, he's trying to preempt God. But God is saying, no. This, I will have my way. And all nations are going to say, we need to go to Jerusalem. Verse 3. And many people shall go and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. To the house of the God of Jacob. So all of this conflict, all of this slaughter, all of this controversy over who's the real God, it's over. And everybody knows that the God of the universe is the God of Jacob. And he's in Jerusalem. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways. And we'll walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. Babylon is over. Out of Zion will go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from the city of Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob. So it's about Judah and Jerusalem. But at this point, it's Jacob. It's all the tribes. God has restored the tribes. Come you and let us walk in the light of the Lord. I want to conclude, brethren, in Isaiah 25. There's so much in Isaiah. I think as we prepare now to keep the feast, let us see what Isaiah saw. Let us heed the warning to come out of Babylon. But it's not just coming out of Babylon and tabernacling. It's actually looking for the city. Our heart should be for Jerusalem. And we're looking for Jerusalem. Isaiah 25. Verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things. Your counsels, your plans of old are faithfulness and true. For you have made of a city a heap. A defense city, a ruin. So this concept of a defense city that came from Cain. Cain was defensive. He didn't want to be slaughtered. And so they learned how to build these defense cities. But God has destroyed them all. A palace of strangers to be no city. It shall never be built. Therefore shall the strong people glorify you. The city of the terrible nations shall fear you. These, these powerful nations that cause other nations to fear. They're going to fear God. For you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat, when the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. You shall bring down the noise of strangers as the heat in a dry place, even the heat within the shadow of a cloud. The branch of the terrible ones shall be brought low. He keeps talking about these terrible ones. And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things. 
God is going to host this feast, this celebration for all people. A feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow. It brings to mind uh, Abel's offering of bringing the fat things to God so that we can all fellowship with God. Of wines on the lees well refined. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. So this deception of the devil over all these nations it will finally be lifted. He will swallow up death in victory and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, the tears that come from the city of man. And the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth. So the people of God, which in this context is Judah, because Israel has been divorced. They've been rebuked. Anti-Semitism is out of control all over the world. And God is now going to take that rebuke away from them. For the Lord has spoken it. And it shall be said in that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For in this mountain shall the hand of the Lord rest. And Moab shall be trodden down under him. So Moab is right beside Israel. It's what we call today Jordan. These are Muslims. And Isaiah is saying the Muslims will be brought down. There'll be no question who the true God is. Moab shall be trodden down under him, even as straw is trodden down for the dunghill. And he shall spread forth his hands in the midst of them, as he that swims spreads forth his hands to swim. And he shall bring down their pride. They're told they're the best of mankind. They're better than everybody. And the Jews are refuse. God says, I hate pride. Pride comes from the devil. He shall bring down their pride together with the spoils of their hands, or what we call the jihad booty. That's all going to be brought down. And the fortress of the high fort of your walls shall he bring down, shall he bring down lay low and bring to the ground, even to the dust. 26.1. In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. So Isaiah's vision is all about Judah and Jerusalem. In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. This is the song that we'll sing. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Open you the gates that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. So this whole Bible is really about, it's a tale of two cities. Cain instituted a city under the inspiration of the devil. He preempted God and he began this city building project. It was wiped out by the flood or it was interrupted by the flood. Nimrod then picks it up and he establishes Babylon and that's interrupted by the languages. But the concept, the ideology, the thinking, the design goes into all nations. And in the end time, it's this same Babylon that influences all nations. Why? Because Satan says he'll be like the Most High. So he looks at the plan of God that God has for Jerusalem, and he tries to do the same thing and have all nations prostrate to him through his city building. 
but God is going to destroy all these cities. And he says to us, come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, that we be not partakers of the destruction. And so this is why we're tabernacling. But while we, ta- while we come out of her and while we tabernacle, we're not aimless. We're like Abraham, we're like Isaac, and we're like Jacob. Yes, we're dwelling in tents, but while we're dwelling in tents, realizing this is all temporary, we realize the land is promised to us, and we're looking for that city whose foundations and builder and maker is God. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.